0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm here in Chicago this week uh, with uh, uh, you know, a major player in the Chicago brewing scene, uh, Revolution. And uh, my guests on the podcast today are Jim uh, Seaback and uh, Marty Scott. Jim is the brewmaster for Revolution, and Marty is the uh, barrel wrangler, barrel operations lead, or something like that, but um, handles the barrel aging program for Revolution. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you
1: for having us. Hello, everybody.
0: Hey, what's up, everyone? So uh, we're going to talk about everything from uh, their extensive barrel aging projects to uh, uh, with a beer that was just coming off of the canning line on a production run for the first time today, uh, hazy Hero, this revolution kind of makes that move into uh, canned uh, and larger scale production around hazy beers. Uh, I think we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about on the brewing side. Uh, but first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, g d Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground level design and engineering, g is ready to meet the challenge. Contact g and Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new g chiller. Also, stay connected to the heart of craft beer and the revolutionary tastemakers behind every can and bottle. Download the free Tavor app to get highly rated independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Recent featured beers include Within Us from Anchorage, Stargate Nectarine from Black Project, King Sue from Toppling Goliath, Ninja vs. Unicorn from Pipe Works right here in Chicago, and Beer to Pay from Side Project. How do they know that is one of my favorite beers in the entire world, Beer to Pay? Uh, Get $10 in beer money today with code Brewing. All right, Jim, Marty, uh, thanks for having me here at the uh, at the Revolution Kedzie Brewery. Folks out there can't see it, but there's a wall of barrels uh, towering over us uh, on my right. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful st- site stacked, uh, six uh, tall out here in the tap room uh, filled in. It's uh, produced a, a beautiful aroma that we get to enjoy as we uh, sip on some Revolution pills. Uh, can't wait to talk to you about the uh, about the way that you guys are brewing beer. But uh, before we get started in that, talk to me a little bit about uh, your personal arcs, uh, how you ended up where you are here. Today, a revolution, and uh, you know, and how that kind of brewing uh, uh, history and career has developed for you.
1: Well, I got excited about brewing back in the late 90s when I was attending Loyola University um, here in Chicago. The business school was downtown, and my buddy Rob and I used to love stopping uh, at the Goose Island Brew Pub, and we got really enthusiastic about tasting all these traditional uh, English styles of beer, German styles, Belgian beers. Uh, we would stop on our way back. We lived in Rogers Park, so we'd redline it and get off at North Avenue and uh, stop over at the um, at the original brew pub there on Clybourne and destroy some pitchers of beer. And we really got super excited about it to the point where we wanted to actually get involved in home brewing. And uh, Greg Hall, who was brewing there at the time, was always very gracious and and helpful with his uh, with his uh, suggestions for brewing and his uh, just, his enthusiasm for beer really got us excited and he was always helpful with you know any ideas we had or he gave us some pointers along the way. Uh, so that was uh, really what kind of got us super enthusiastic about not only beer styles, but craft brewing in general. And when I graduated um, in 93, I attended Siebel Institute here in Chicago in, um, in 95. And the funny thing was, back then, the craft brewing industry was nowhere near in the heyday as it, as it is now. And one of the things, uh, when I spoke with Chris Bird, who was the registrar there, they were almost kind of suggesting that you don't try to get involved in craft brewing. They're like, are you sure you want to do this? Uh, it's a lot of work it's, it's hard, it's dirty, it's sweaty. You're not going to make any money. You may not even find a job. So, uh, back then there wasn't a a cornucopia of opportunities. So they were kind of trying to dis, I don't want to say dissuade you, but they were just kind of giving you some brutal reality about getting started in the, in the industry. Uh, but I, when I went to Siebel, I did the two week course, uh, the short course and I did the one week operations course. And, uh, didn't have any money at all at the time and just finishing business school i tried to convince my mom and dad i said uh so they're like what are you gonna do i'm like well i'd like to go to siebel and study brewing and they're like oh oh boy they're like what are we in for now but uh my parents believed in me and they they gave me the money to actually go and take these brewing courses at siebel and um when i was at uh, the siebel institute i met uh Nick Floyd, who was brewing at the Wine cellar at the time uh, in Berwyn and Westmont, Illinois. And um, they were looking for an assistant brewer over there. So um, it just happened to be in the right place in the right time, which tends to happen in this industry. Sure. So I started working there, uh, worked with uh, Nick. He was training me uh, in brewing and cellaring um, and filtration at uh, both locations, one in Westmont and one in Berwyn. Uh, We had a really good time. We like to drink a lot of beers uh, together. And uh, he was telling me about his plans of starting Three Floyds. And I'm like, wow, that sounds awesome. He's like, where are you going to do that, man? he's like, Hammond. I'm like, Indiana? Because I lived in Calumet City at the time. And the, the, the thought of a craft brewery brewing super hoppy West Coast style beers in Hammond, Indiana was about as foreign of a concept as you could ever dream of at that point. Uh, But he was super adamant about it, and uh, he eventually left to start working on his plans and get his first brewery started in Hammond, Indiana, on Calumet Avenue, a little north of where they are now. And um, there was the opportunity for me to go work at Goose Island's production facility. They were just opening up that brewery Mm. uh, on Fulton Street. And I stopped in and talked with Greg and kind of talked with him a little bit. He remembered me from the pub. Uh, he told me, uh, "Yeah, you know, we're looking for someone to work on the night shift. It's 6 p.m. to 6 a.m." And uh, I was like, "Wow, that's uh, that—that's pretty wild working, you know, o- overnight." It was a foreign concept for me, but I was super excited about getting started. Um, so I took the job, and I mean, there was no interview, anything. He was brewing, and he's just—he <laughs> <laughs> looked at looked at my resume and talked to me. He's like, oh, "Why don't you come in tomorrow and 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 get started?" So. Uh, I worked at Goose Island for five years, worked there from 95 until 2000. And then in in 2000, that's when uh, Three Floyds was uh, moving their brewery to Munster in the location they're at now. Uh, So Nick said, he's like, hey, man, he's like, I'm finally ready. If you want to come on board, you know, we're ready to take you on. So I I went and worked at uh, Three Floyds and worked there from 2000 until 2006, which was a great experience uh, unleashing Imperial IPAs and (laughs) uh, Imperial Stouts upon the poor unsuspecting folks of Munster, Indiana. I don't know if everyone was ready for it at the time. I remember the first time we brewed Dreadnought Imperial IPA, uh, there was an older gentleman that was in the brewery and I poured one for him in our little uh, concession stand tasting room. And uh, he tasted the beer, and he's like, hmm. He's like, you guys sell this? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, man. Uh, We just bottled this today. He's like, and people buy it? He kind of thought we were collectively insane and thought we were maybe trying to poison him with super hoppy uh, 9% imperial ip it's quaint
0: how uh you know how retro you know some of those now taste you go back to them like oh right, that we thought that was crazy at one point and now here we are today
1: but it was an awesome experience working there back in the day it was just a bunch of us buddies it was nick myself and uh, john mish and uh dick van dyke who's our salesman and john fryer was a a salesman as well for the company and it was just us banging it out and with the help of uh, all our good friends and uh local supporters in uh, Munster, Indiana, they helped us out, I mean, and got the, the brewery on. It sure, really sure. kind of helped it get to the point where it is now, and it's that's why, I mean, they still have a super rabid following, and it's really kind of built on that, the local cornerstones uh, between Chicago and uh, and Indiana. Sure, and well. then you
0: went out uh, to the West Coast after that, right?
1: I did. Uh, Matt Brinelson and I were uh, good friends. Um, him Myself and Josh Deeth worked together at uh, the Fulton Brewery uh, for Goose Island in the late 90s, and uh, he went out to California, and I was kind of getting the itch to go and check out a new part of the country, so he's like, why don't you come out and uh, and work here and, you know, check out the Central Coast, uh, drink some wine, drink some beers, we'll brew some beers, and... Uh, Came out there and uh, worked out at Firestone for two years with with Matt and the crew out there. It was an amazing experience. Uh, sure, such passionate people. And then you came back this direction. I came back. Uh, my dad was having some health issues at the time, so I came back to be closer to family and um, talked with some gentlemen, uh, some business partners, and uh, got started with uh, Crown Brewing Company. We kind of got that off of its uh, off of its feet. Uh, really really nice spot to work uh, and one day Josh who was an old friend of mine he loved riding his bike so we came riding through and he had the plans and drawings for uh, Revolution Brew Pub with him and he was telling me about he, what he wanted to do and I knew you know Josh knew what he was doing and he had the backing and he had been trying to start Revolution Brewing Company for God as long as I almost as long as I knew him he had the sure he had the name he had the design he was cobbling together equipment in his basement, much much to his wife's chagrin. Sure, sure. I mean, I remember 20 years ago going in his basement. And he's he's like, oh, I found this heat exchanger. I'm trying to get together. I'm you know. And he just had these little pieces of equipment he was cobbling <laughs> cobbling together, and it just took him uh, the right. He was in the right time. The right people found the right building. Just seemed like everything finally came together at that point uh, with that building on Milwaukee and that's when we started working on uh, the construction of the pub and actually uh, getting the brew system together. He found uh, it was a 15-barrel system from a brewery that went out of business in Michigan, and forgive me, I don't remember the name of the the company. But uh, So we cobbled together this really kind of – it's definitely not going to win a a beauty contest, (laughs) but we knew that we could put it together and we could make some really – tasty beers on it because after all it's 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 not how she looks it's like it's what you sure, can what sure. you can do with it so and we knew we just needed to get started and start uh you know cranking some beer out and well, so it's fun
0: to see how those intersections and those connections that you've made at various points in your career have come back whether it's working with matt at goose island and then now to firestone walker or josh coming back around into this brewery now um, you know, those relationships and those things kind of persist and uh you know become the connections that uh you know that keep propelling you forward and uh you know and creating new opportunities for you. So no, that's that's fantastic. Um Marty, uh, tell me a little bit about your background.
2: Well my history is uh quite a bit shorter than uh <laughs> than Mr. Seaback's Epic. Um let's see out of uh, this is my first brewery that I've ever worked for, Revolution Brewing. Um uh, Jim back's the only brewmaster that I've ever worked for, so I've had zero opportunity to learn any bad habits. Um, out of high school, I joined the Air Force. Uh, did that for a few years. I worked on uh, avionics uh, for F-15s and F-16s. Uh, got out, went to school, uh, studied psychology, and then got a job working in uh, in Libertyville for a, a fantastic uh, nonprofit organization, Uh I still wasn't totally satisfied. I was making more money working the cash register at the liquor store in college than I was using my degree. And somebody got sick and tired of hearing me complain about it. And I realized, well, you know, I can be broke doing anything, but I don't have to be unhappy. Uh, So someone suggested I go to brewing school. And I said, what school? And I was informed about the existence of Siebel Institute, like Jim mentioned. I took the two-week concise course in 2010 and started observing um, over at Revolution at the Brew Pub in April of 2010. After about a year or so of that, um, in, let's see, April of 2012, we started brewing over here at Kedzie, and Jim and Maddie came over here. They came on over here, and they asked then- Assistant brewer at the brew pub if he wanted to stay at the brew pub or if he wanted to come over here to Kedzie, He elected to stay at the brew pub uh, And I was the next guy down on the totem pole. It was a really short totem pole. I was at the bottom and uh, They said, okay, well Marty you want to go over to Kedzie?" and um, I just I knew I was going to follow my sensei uh, Jim C back um, to come start this really cool thing that I had been dreaming about Uh, eventually got promoted to full-time seller. And then when we got a second seller, man, uh, was lead seller and more and more, I got, uh, involved with the barrel program. Um, uh, it seemed like the first, first season we did it, uh, Jim and Maddie were, you know, working 14, 16 hour days, pretty routinely. And then barrel season would come along. And though we only had uh, a few dozen barrels, um, it was a lot of work to do after you've brewed and CIP and cellared and do all this stuff. And now you've got to fill all these, barrels and i just never let jim work alone uh, because it seemed like it was at least a two-person job and uh one day at the end of an exceptionally long shift i think it was jim just said hey marty uh, you want this project you want to handle this i think he was probably pretty sick and tired of of uh working these long shifts and then also having to do barrel work um so that's that's how i got into this and for for a long time um it was just don't screw up Jim's beer. And that's still my, <laughs> my guiding principle. Um, in, in anything I do here, don't hurt anybody. Don't hurt yourself. Don't screw up Jim's beer. Um, but now that we're a bigger enough company and we all kind of specialize a little bit more and more, uh, I'm able to put a lot more focus on, uh, barrel operations than most breweries have. Um, you know, I, I'm, focused on it pretty much full-time year-round.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, you know, some of those barrel operations. Uh, but before we do that, uh, with over 200 years of combined experience in the craft beverage industry, Country Malt Group's dedicated sales and support staff understand the importance of excellent ingredients, product knowledge, and expertise in making great beer. Country Malt Group's mission is to provide the products and services you need while making the process of ordering ingredients easy. The focus is to inspire your best craft. Order online at shop.countrymalt.com. Also, balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial one 855 my 855-692-5274 or visit com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. So barrel aging. From early on in this process, obviously you come out of a Goose Island program gym where, you know, barrel aging was, you know, they were pretty much pioneers in the you know, in brewing that style of beer, starting in the very early '90s, and then carrying through and turning it into a thing. Uh, when you launched, you know, Revolution and Josh, uh, you know, put this business together. It's been kind of core uh, to what Revolution does, brewing some of these specialty barrel-aged beers. Also, you know, from the very early days, and so you all got to kind of you know help co-pioneer in the early 2010s or 2010s, like you know this kind of style of beer, producing it in a way that's more accessible to you know larger numbers of people, not just a small Small-scale kind of barrel program, but uh, you know, a fairly large barrel program. Um, you know, that uh, that's producing a significant volume. It has its own interesting challenges as a result of the scale of that kind of program. Talk to me a little bit about the idea behind it, how you've uh, you know honed in on specific styles, and uh, you know, and some of the ways that this barrel program over those years has uh, you know has kind of grown and developed.
1: We've been pretty focused from the beginning uh, when we started brewing at the brew pub. We knew we wanted to start siking some beer, uh, strong like Imperial Stout, Imperial Porter, uh, Imperial Brown Ales, Imperial Rye Ales. We knew that those styles are just like absolutely perfect for aging in bourbon and spirit barrels. In the beginning, it was very hard for us because we were cranking through so much beer yeah. at, the, at the brew pub. It was hard for us to give the beer the proper time that we wanted it to sit in the barrel. Um, I almost feel that sometimes, if a beer is in a barrel for too short of a period of time, it, it almost tastes like a boiler maker where it's a strong beer where someone dropped a, a shot of uh, bourbon or whiskey in there. I, I really feel that you need the time to have that beer uh, integrate with the wood and pull out all those wonderful flavors and aromas. And we were having a hard time. More to- so
0: than just the alcohol itself and that kind of impact.
1: Absolutely. I, I felt that in the beginning, some of our beers that we, that we uh, released at the brew pub, um, it was the case with most of our strong beers. We, we didn't have the time to really let them chill out and really kind yeah. of uh, mellow and age the way we wanted to. in what the were aging
0: times back then.
1: Back then, it was like maybe, I think at the first beer we had in a barrel, I think it was maybe three months. And um, my goal is always, and we had talked about it, we always wanted to say, you know, we want to be in the barrel for a minimum of a year. And our dream was always to, when we we finally got here to Kedzie and started brewing on a larger scale, was to be able to brew beers ahead of time and give beer extended aging uh, with the barrel and give us the ability to uh, start approaching our program Uh, like winemakers do where you have different components uh different beer in uh different barrels different times just give us flexibility uh even beers that are uh, drier sweeter uh blending together to achieve a, a certain finished product that we want um but in the beginning we didn't have the ability to do that so our beers were a little uh barrel aged beers were a little rough and uh raw around the edges but um I know Marty shares the same opinion as I do that uh, finally now with the power of brew house number two, where we could generate enough beer uh, to put in barrels, do we actually have a stockpile of beers uh, and components of different beers with uh, different finishing gravities where we have the ability to approach these beers and really uh, refine and design the finished product rather than just putting a beer in a barrel and say okay it's ready to go now we have the ability now to look at the finishing gravities of these beers the the time in the barrel the barrels themselves and really create something that we're super proud and pleased with and really design what we want rather than just putting beer in a barrel and taking it out of the
0: barrel Sure. So you started with this 15-barrel pub system over at the Milwaukee Pub and then you move here to a production facility on Kedzie and you put in a 50-barrel brew house and think, "Oh gosh, this is it. We're never going to need more than this, you know, for a giant production facility." And then production continued to grow and continued to grow and then you put in a 150-barrel system on top of that, which is the the, you know, brew house that you were just talking about. Uh, On the strength of some kind of core brands, uh, you know, like the Antihero IPA that have, you know, of course taken off in the upper Midwest here. Um, You know, but that kind of production and that kind of, and now you're brewing over 80,000 barrels of beer per year. Um, So a pretty significant production as a, you know, pretty large regional brewery in in this area. You know, yet you still, you know, despite the success and the kind of challenge that you know brewing these large volumes of large beers, or you know more accessible beers for a larger number of people, you still stayed focused on keeping this kind of specialty program with barrel aging going. Here, you know, how have you know you've kind of been able to take some of the resources that come with that additional scale, you know, and invested in some of these you know labors of love and you know more specialty projects.
1: Utilizing the power of Brewhouse Number 2 our, uh, Milstar, um, and our GEA Millstar, Star and the Lauder Ton is so nice and wide, it allows us to approach these high-gravity beers that we're brewing with these large mashes with challenging malts, such as flaked oats, all, all the dark malts that we use, roasted barley, chocolate malt, uh, flaked grains. Uh, when we brew our Rye right Way to Heaven, we're 60% plus, uh, total rye malt in the mash and that's a, a significant challenge running that beer off but what having the uh, the brew house number two in the Big Lauderton and the GEA Millstar has allowed us to really become more efficient and to be able to brew larger volumes of these high-gravity beers and the challenge has been for us to try to fit them into our schedule when we have really nice happy healthy yeast as any of uh, you brewers out there know that you know, you're trying to brew a beer that's 28 or 30 Play-Doh. You better have some happy, healthy yeast in there. or You're going to uh, have a very sad, tiny bubbles coming out of your blow-off uh, bucket. You, you want a raging fermentation, and you need to make sure you have the proper amount of yeast, and it better be happy and healthy because when you throw it into a 30 Play-Doh, word, it, it's going to be pretty shocked, and uh, you better make sure you're ready to go and you have a good plant for it.
0: Well, and yeast propagation for you all has changed significantly obviously at this kind of scale you now you know propagate with tanks that are the size of some other you know breweries uh, brew systems and fermenters um you know what is that key to you know when you're when you're uh, using yeast here number one you know are there specific varieties that you found um you know that work or are you using a house yeast that you're just propping up with a deep you know with a, a stronger pitch for these bigger kinds of beers, you know, and are there any kind of processes around, uh, you know, uh, adding nutrients or other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, aids and assistance to kind of help those uh, yeast uh, survive in this pretty dangerous, high alcohol, high gravity environment?
1: Yes, that's a fantastic uh, question. Our our workhorse house ale yeast here is the 1968, the uh, the Y yeast, the special London to ale. Uh, we use it here. We we're very. Uh, we brew a lot of IPAs here and American Pale Ales at Revolution Brewing Company. And one of the reasons I chose that yeast strain is because I became familiar with it brewing at uh, Three Floyds, and I knew that it produces some really nice malty flavors. It it doesn't attenuate super far, uh, and it's great for brewing uh, hoppy pale ales, whether it's English pale ales or American pale ales or IPAs, Um, and you can count on that yeast. Uh, dropping out so you can harvest it and get a good uh, pitch on subsequent beers down the, down the line. Uh, so it's been a great yeast and we've used that in our high gravity brewing as well. The trick is just making sure in our schedule that we have uh, enough tanks being brewed that week so we could divert some fresh yeast for uh, other fermentations, and then we designate some that we are going to be basically sending out to pasture because once it goes into that high-gravity fermentation, sure, sure. it's, it's rode hard and put away wet, and that's the end of its
0: life cycle for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, is there any, uh, you know, kind of goal for pitch rates in order to kind of do that, you know, compared to your, your, you know, normal, uh, hoppy beers.
1: I like this. We're getting down and dirty and specific baby. Hey, uh, we got brewers. They want to <laughs> know. I'm curious. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Normally our pitch rate on most of our, uh, I would say mid range fifteen to 16 Plato IPAs or pale ales. Uh, we're at 1 million cells per mil. Okay. Uh, What we have learned is when we're pitching our big tanks in the back, our 800 barrel tanks, say with um, 800 barrels of anti-hero, it takes us six turns of brew house number two to fill one of the big guys in the back. And we were pitching that at a million cells per mil. And I was consulting with my good buds at Firestone, uh, Jim Crooks in particular, uh, and he was telling me that they went through the same kind of issues with trying to really learn how to pitch these tanks properly. Uh, The whole time you're filling this tank, it's taken us about 22 hours to pitch this tank, or to uh, brew into this tank and completely fill it with six turns. So we learned that instead of pitching one million cells per mil, uh, we were getting down as far as pitching 500 thousand cells per mil because we're doing six turns or brewing six turns into this tank and then we are oxygenating the first three turns so we're getting growth on all three of those first turns uh, and then the three subsequent turns come in and what we were experiencing was a, a super rapid fermentation at a million cells per mil and we were running into issues where you know we were basically almost at dry hopping gravity on a day and a half to two days and the yeast was being a high flocculating yeast it would drop out really quickly and we were running into issues where we weren't getting the dry hop character uh, the really nice fruity yeah. character from the hops and we were getting okay. some grungier flavors uh, what we were what we were suspecting and what we kind of came to decide is that we just didn't have enough yeast still in contact because it was just raging hard yeah. fermenting out and dropping out and we really weren't digging the hop character and aroma and flavor that we were getting in our beer so uh, with the help of the guys from Firestone uh, thank you Jim uh, you are the yeast master um, it, he really helped us kind of get that in your chain. tank
0: itself is basically propping the rest of the yeast for the rest of the tank as you as you continue to fill it up rather than pitching you know that full volume of that I and mean, I guess if you'd pitch that full volume early on then you're massively over pitching at the, the front end of that yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you're doing, we were basically pitching our tank like it was. We had an 800 barrel brew house, and it was 800 barrels of wort we're cooling into that tank is what we found out. And in the back, we really don't have a good way. If we were under pitch back there, it would be very challenging for us to try to repitch or get more sure. yeast into that tank with 800 barrels of the weight of that. Uh, trying to get that in there and get it mixed up. So we've always erred on the side of being over rather than under. But we definitely found that we were too high with our pitching rates, and we started backing that off. And we really liked the results that we were seeing. And with less yeast production, uh, that led to more uh, finished beer volume coming out of the tank as well.
0: So how does that differ then for uh, you know these these stouts and these big beers, the uh, you know barley wines, rye wines, uh, you know that you brew? And uh, how does uh, your yeast process differ for that? I assume you're not putting those into 800 barrel tanks, but uh I don't know. Maybe you are.
1: <laughs> we are not. I, I'm afraid. Okay. Of, I'm okay. afraid of uh, 800 barrel 30 Plato fermentation. That would <laughs> that would probably fill our parking lot with about three feet of uh, high crosen foam and yeast in in the back.
0: Sounds like a party.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but what we are doing is we are aggressively pitching our uh, our high gravity uh, deep wood beers that we're brewing. Uh, We're targeting at least 2 million cells per mil, uh, sometimes north of that. We don't want to play around in there. We know that that high sugar concentration, uh, usually if it's a darker beer too, like a stout, it's a little lower word pH. So it's kind of a pretty rough environment to throw uh, some happy, healthy yeast into. So we we have to make sure uh, when we brew these beers, we're heavily oxygenating the word as well on every cool. And we're like 12 liters per minute of oxygen. Uh, We're hitting the um the wort with some yeast nutrient as well so we're trying to give this yeast as much of a fighting chance as it can before we drop it basically into uh into a, a super rough environment so we we want it to be health as healthy and happy as it can
0: before we uh throw it into 30 play-doh wort so is that coming out of you know seven percent ipa environment and then you know uh uh, cropping off and then you know uh, moving into this kind of uh, high uh, gravity environment or are, you, uh, are there any other more intermediate steps between that?
1: For us most of the time we're doing um, pretty hoppy beers that we're harvesting yeast out of I would say probably the mo- one of the most gentle environments that we always have are yeast available in is anti-hero and that's 6.8% uh, uh, yeah. ABV 65 IBUs so that yeast is uh kind of used to we're kind of beating it up a little bit getting her ready to rock and roll going into a even higher gravity wort so uh, we do do some uh some lighter beers we do our fifth city pale ale and we do our sun crusher but yeah. sun crusher is seasonal so that's if we could brew that year round, that would be such a wonderful environment for the yeast to come out of. That's 12 Play-Doh, 35 IBUs. That's like a wonderland for yeast compared to coming sure. out of uh, antiheroes.
0: Let's talk a little bit about malt component of these beers. You know, one of the interesting thing, uh, interesting things that I've noticed over the last you know eight or nine years of drinking barrel aged imperial stouts is uh, how consumer expectations about how you know about texture and body. Uh, you know, thickness and, uh, you know, uh, the kind of physical sensation of these beers has kind of changed. Uh, in order to produce that, certainly it's, it's kind of pushed brewers in some different directions uh, um, in order to kind of build that physical experience. Uh, for you all, how has uh, you know have those uh, the kind of malt bodies for these beers uh, you know uh, transitioned over time, and where do you uh, like to be right now? We're, uh, balancing out that kind of drinkability versus uh, that kind of textural expectation among certain beer uh, consumers.
1: I think grain bill is a great starting point. Um, I don't think that when when you approach a beer or what you really think about a finished beer tasting looking like, uh, when you're thinking about texture, it doesn't always have to be all about sweetness. Uh, I mean, that is definitely a component. But when you build a grain bill for a beer, you really have to think about uh, layering some texture in there with some flaked grains, whether it's flaked barley, wheat, or rye, or oats, uh or oat malt uh or some some
0: rye malt as well so it's like that beta no jim you just add lactose to it come on it's it's really easy right
1: (laughs) you you certainly can do that and that's always a a nice component as well Um, however when, when you build that out of the grain bill and you extract that silky velvety texture from, from the grains themselves and from your mashing temperatures and your process, I think that that uh, tends to lead to a little more of a, a drinkable finished product. Um, you know, we're not against using adjuncts in beers whatsoever, um, but you know, we like to build in a lot of the textural things that we really are looking for in a finished product from, from the grain build to begin with. And then down the line, we look and see what we think will work with the beer, uh, the particular beer style, um, you know, whether it's coffee or uh, different fruit additions, whatever, we've gotten a little, I think we, we've gotten a little more open-minded to experimentation and really kind of trying to uh, see what we can achieve with uh, different blends and variations and different sure. adjuncts as well. So we're definitely totally not against that. But one of the things we really like to look at as an adjunct is uh, time. Of the beer sitting in the in the barrel and aging and also uh, the the wood itself the the barrel itself yeah. too. so we like to I mean we try to get as much from our raw materials as we can uh, and we we feel that it's really time that lends complexity and grain bill and then blending of finished product as well to really achieve the most balanced drinkable beer uh, you can achieve and I, I always hearken or harp on the word balance I say it over and over again, but we feel here and we've felt it from this has really been the mantra of our company is that whether we're brewing a, a, a Dark English mild ale, which is the first beer we ever brewed at Revolution Brewing Company or we're brewing a 14% barrel age strong rye ale uh, We feel that no matter what the ABV the bitterness the starting or ending gravity of the beer. It should be balanced and present uh, a drinkable experience for our con- our customers.
0: So balance, you know, obviously that's something that's on generally in the forefront for all sorts of, uh, you know, brewers. I mean, every brewer tends to aspire to brew some balanced beers, although there are some that just brew as uh Andy parker from Avery called it gloriously unbalanced beers and there are times where those are fantastic. You know, but balance can mean a lot of different things. You know, there's there's balance at all these different you know various different levels of of ABV and strength and that balance can mean different things in terms of uh you can balance at very intense levels where there are multiple competing intensities that all tend to you know create that kind of balance. You can balance at more subtle levels where there are lower intensities and lower alcohol and and you know that creates some some different sense of that. Uh, what I what I find interesting, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, again how you build malt bills for these these beers and base malts and whatnot. But it sounds like there's not a single recipe for any of these beers. You know, we mentioned this, you know, beauty of blending, and that your approach to building these barrel aged beers is built on tasting and pulling these different components and these different base beers and these different kinds of barrels in order to kind of you know realize this, um, you know. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit, and let's talk about how you build. You know, in some ways, you know, like an artist uh, using different pigments and building these kinds of things to paint with. Uh, you know, how do then? How then do you conceive of? these different types of uh, strings of beers that you'll then put into barrels, even if that thing that you're brewing and putting into this barrel is not going to be a straight release just as it is going into the barrel, but will ultimately be be blended with something. How do you uh, mentally conceive of this? How do you, you know, uh, 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 then decide uh, what angles to take on some of these specific components?
1: I'm going to put this on a tee for Marty and let him take a take a whack at it but um, how how we look at things is when we if we're looking out and we're thinking of something that we're going to a beer that we're going to add fruit to for instance we want to make sure that when we brew that beer we're going to look at using a lower mashing temperature and a higher pitching rate on that we're going to try to get that beer to attenuate down a little bit further because we know we're going to be adding sweetness from puree or whole fruit to it Um, however if we know that we're going to be Uh, say, double barrel aging a beer where we transfer out of one barrel and going into another barrel where we know we're going to be increasing the alcohol content, we're going to brew that particular beer with a higher mashing temperature and we're going to try to achieve a little higher finishing gravity on that one. So when that uh, goes from one barrel to the next and it finally emerges, it's not, uh, you know, thin and unbalanced and just like a super booze bomb. So that's what we've been really kind of thinking about. We're looking ahead at what the products that we want to, or are are going to be putting out. And then we're looking at Uh, using the same recipe but we've been altering our mash temperatures to produce a drier finished product or a higher finishing gravity finished product so we have come we like to look at them as being components so we can go in either direction whether we want to you know extended barrel age in another barrel or a different spirit barrel or if we want to add some you know hit it very heavily with fruit and if we have a beer that has a high finishing gravity already we don't want to get too aggressive when we're adding fruit to it because it'll just be in our opinion a little too bit too sweet
0: so you're not necessarily changing recipes of some of these but you are changing mash temperatures to you know produce some different attenuation levels for these various things that go into barrels to kind of give you that back end ability to blend out to you know something uh you know that balances that alcohol and wood uh, contribution with the kind of body and sweetness that uh you know that uh, your uh, your buyers want to you know want to taste
1: absolutely and marty's
0: interesting yeah
1: marty's really been focusing on this and he actually has some metrics that he's been working on which is, has been super impressive to me because he's kind of actually like putting some numbers and values to what we've been explaining to people and like what we're talking about here it's it's hard to actually put value upon that and you know have a target for this particular beer if we're adding sweetness to it or if we're going to be you know extended
0: barrel aging it in a different barrel so sure uh, this is the hardest thing you know whenever i have conversations with brewers you know to talk about how do you articulate in some sort of language or math you know the sensory impacts of these things and come up with you know some way of you know consistently uh, executing on these these kinds of things so talk to me a little bit about that marty uh you know your kind of mathematical process for thinking about how to balance uh you know some of these items
2: so, yeah, if this was the art component, it's more like color by numbers than uh, a, a classically <laughs> trained artist. Um, I, I want to take. I love as, the self-deprecation there. Yeah, I want to yeah. I want to take as much of the guesswork out of this um, and create a system uh, that just takes care of itself as long as you do the math and double check it. Uh, and then we can plan um two, three years out in advance, and we can make all these ridiculous beers and have them be uh, appreciably different brand to brand uh, as you go from our base beer to what we call our VSO, or Very Special Old, or even to Double Barrel Very Special Old. They should all have uh, balance. The, the program over the... And so the, very, very Special Old, this is a barley wine? Uh, it is it is a category. We, we can do very special, old, anything barrel-aged, provided okay. uh, it meets a couple of criterion. Uh, and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, so the the heart and soul of the improvements that we've made and that we hopefully are making in uh, our little world of barrel-aging has been three-pronged. First was quality. Uh, we were sourcing barrels from someone that, was just the barrel supplier for a lot of people uh, at that time and the barrels were not always uh, a highest quality they weren't fresh enough a lot of times Um, the beer that we were putting into it wasn't always strong enough and we didn't have enough uh, environmental control over their aging conditions so by increasing the starting abv to qualify to go into barrel to at least 10 percent abv um, unfortunately having to fire that barrel supplier um, so we could get barrels that were guaranteed fresh and wet and sanitary and then having air conditioning in our tap room um, where the barrels can live or in the last uh, two years we added what we call the big blue curtain that's attached to our shipping receiving cooler which is fed cold air from the cooler and that's uh, year-round about 65 to 68 degrees fahrenheit Uh, putting in those controls uh, was the quality aspect and we started losing rather than 30% of all the barrels we filled To zero percent of all really? the barrels we filled and we've got about 1,100 filled barrels here uh, save for a couple of wine barrels recently um, that uh, have proven well not not as tasty as we want them Um we've had uh, aside from those uh, four or five barrels uh, 100% pass rate in uh, sensory and pH and plating and PCR uh, for about the last 2000 oak barrels that we've filled and emptied so to put a fine point on that uh, you know uh, you maintain
0: a consistent temperature year round for these barrels you know though this giant stack next to us is sitting here in your tap room that's maintaining a kind of comfortable room temperature and you have then created a similar kind of room temperature Curtained off uh, section uh, further back in the warehouse to also maintain those barrels at a similar consistent room temperature year
2: round. That's correct. Uh, obviously, temperature changes are going to drive liquid in and out of barrels, and that's all fine and good if you're making a barrel strength uh, spirit, uh, but the same forces that harm your beer in a can, a bottle, a keg, or a tank are going to harm your product in a barrel. So, we going back to what Jim said, you know, a year at least, um, just that diffusion or osmosis. Um, you know that's that's how we're gonna get our barrel extract is through time um, and we can't ever lose sight of the fact that we are making beer we're you know kinda gently and artistically damaging beer in an oak tank uh, for upwards of three four years in some cases but it's still beer and we have to respect that it's beer so having our first base quality more or less covered uh, we started seeing that well we can't sell all this beer because we filled 30% more than we thought we could sell um, because we thought we were going to lose about 30% of the batch (laughs) so we start filling barrels for one vintage year and we've got a dozen or so maybe more uh, barrels of the same beer from the previous vintage year that are still aging and I need to start keeping track of this as it's aging so I uh, I borrowed from cognac terminology and put a vo in front of it on my what i call my barrel map and it's a bird's eye view of every barrel in the stack all 1100 and now it's got batch numbers and fill dates it's a lot more um, workable document now than it used to be but it used to be well these are the the very old barrels and these are the uh, newer batches and uh, getting into the Uh, Well, we'll we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. Uh, The the second step after quality was consistency. And, of course, these are vintage products, um, and most of them are never to be replicated, hopefully because we're constantly improving upon them. And it's a a fluid idea of what these products are supposed to be. Uh, So we certainly, like winemakers, embrace um, the impact of a vintage year uh, is going to have on a, a vertical or any kind of selection of these beers. Uh, but we wanted, uh, going back to balance, uh, to have a metric that we could rely on. Uh, and uh, a super creative name for it is the balance value, or BV. Uh, and this is a two-digit... Gi- two brewers love yes. terms with acronyms, especially yes. with numbers attached to them. Yeah. I love it. The balance value. Yeah, the balance value is we use it. And that is our spec for all of our beers. Um, and what it is is a two-digit decimal Uh, from double ot to 0.99 that expresses how sweet or how dry and boozy this barrel-aged beer is. We can't rely on IBUs to provide balance to something really sugary when it's this old. Um, So what is it that that provides the balance? And really, it's the relationship of sugar and alcohol. Uh, So we take finishing gravity expressed in degrees Plato divided by the ABV, and then we round it to two decimals, and every one of our beers, whether it's a one-year, two-year, three-year double barrel, uh, will have a target for that relationship. So uh, as we increase the ABV of these beers to all north of 10% we are really as high as we can uh, to hedge our bets on the first uh, cornerstone, the, the quality aspect, you want to put as high ABV into these barrels as possible to guard against uh, the, you know, the odd infected barrel. Uh, we completely changed the makeup of these beers and the reception of these beers. So we needed to adjust the sugar content, uh, to kind of back sweeten the beer, but using malt. Um, so now all of our beers are one year beers or what we call RO or regular old. Uh, (laughs) they all have a target balance value, whether it's a, a barley wine uh, or straight jacket, for instance, has its own target balance value. Um, D-star, or Imperial oatmeal stout is slightly drier. It's got its own balance value. Uh, the same is true across the board. You move up to the VSO or very special old, everything is a minimum of two years old. And to further differentiate it, uh, to kind of balance the increase Oak, um, we increase the target, um, balance value. So typically it's about 0.1 higher, uh, than, um, the RO version of the beer, the one-year version of the beer, uh, certain certain exceptions are as aggressive as 0.2 uh, higher balance value, um, and that is a good segue into. So you're uh, then
0: eight, you're making sure that those barrels that are targeted for that extra aging are getting uh, you know that higher uh, you know finishing gravity beer loaded into them in order to kind of maintain that idea of balance, value down in the future.
2: Exactly. Uh, so we've got to mash in every batch knowing if it's going to be um, sweet or dry. I mean, I mean that's the same as, as any beer, but we look at the amount of beer that we need to sell over the next two years or that we want to sell or want to manufacture, and we make a certain amount of dry and a certain amount of sweet. And that one year will get a little bit more dry than the sweet, the two-year will get a little bit more sweet than the dry and then if we're going to go above and beyond that and do like a double barrel vso uh, we want it to have the same balance value the same drinkability as the vso Uh, so that relationship doesn't change but what does change is because we are going to like jim alluded to we're going to have a much higher abv that has to have a uh, the same percentage higher in finishing gravity um, so that the, uh, the association or relationship between alcohol and sugar is still the right, same. Right. Cause
0: that additional year produced more evaporation or loss out of that barrel, which will increase the ABV, which means it's got to be even bigger going into it.
2: Uh, yeah. Among other things, among other uh, things what else, uh, you know, factors. Into so that, that, that brings us into the third tier. Uh, we had quality, we have consistency, and then finally we're getting to complexity, uh, this is as close to art as we're going to come, and there's a metric for that too. <laughs> uh, so, what we noticed um, the first time we ever produced VSOJ, you know, it was uh, a result of having this extra beer that we couldn't. Uh, and dose. this is very special, old straight jacket. Correct. Okay. Um, the and first. That's the barley wine, right? That is yes. Okay. That is the two and three year uh, blend of sweet barley wines. Uh, the first year it was produced there was an issue in mash temperature and the beer finished way high out of spec for sugar. Um, And we started blending it in to regular old straight jacket. And while that was a banner year for regular old straight jacket, uh, we had all this super sweet, uh, what we thought at the time was pretty undrinkable on its own, barley wine. So we couldn't use it all right away. And we had a component of this uh, that went into its third year Um, And then when we started tasting these three-year-old super sweet barley wine barrels, we noticed that there was something uh, nearly magical happening. Uh, It was, you know, obviously something in science was happening and we just couldn't articulate it, but we knew that something different was happening. And when we just kind of gentled down the sweetness of that beer just a little bit with a drier component, which we kind of emergency brewed to balance out the really sweet stuff, um, it was a two-year component. Everything came together and stars aligned, and people really loved the beer. And we were really just trying to clear out some old barrels from the stack, Um, and that taught us, wow, these special or these uh, these underattenuated sweet beers really do something phenomenal when you put a lot of age to them. Uh, So you're saying that that kind of residual sweetness
0: somehow improves extraction from a barrel, or pull helps pull some of those flavors or characters or
2: complexity out of it what we think is happening is it's the the malt sugars themselves that are oxidizing okay uh, the the more sugar you have there and the more oxygen you have uh, the more oxidative malt compounds uh, that you're likely to have and this is conjecture this is just what sure, we're sure. what we've what we've seen in the past but we've brewed this uh, vsoj a, a number of times or i should say we've blended vsoj a number of times now um and it, uh, it works across pretty much every style that we've tried so far. Uh, so getting back into um, producing base beers or components of disparate finishing gravities, um, we try to overproduce our sweet components because we know we can't use them really quickly uh, and that allows them to mature uh, even longer than our drier components and the longer these super sweet beers go the more depth of malt complexity that we're seeing in return from them Uh, so you can actually use a little bit of very old sweet stuff and a whole lot of younger drier stuff and the average age of the sugar molecules therein will be higher than if you just brewed that batch uh, aged it for one year at that blended finishing gravity Um, and it's much easier to, to show than to, to say, uh, but we refer to that as the malt complexity value and that is expressed either in months or years. It's much easier, and much more expressive to do it in months. So the um, MCVM, uh, as as I call it, uh, we can map out the, or graph uh, graphically show the average age of malt sugars in a blend. Um, and looking at, uh, if you took straight jacket that finished at the finishing gravity of VSOJ, and you kept it in barrels for two years, and then you brewed a really ridiculously sweet version of it, and then a dry version of it, blended it to that, both aged two years, uh, the average age of your sugar molecule will actually increase. Uh, and You can get a four-fold increase in malt complexity with only a two-fold increase in time spent in barrel with a proper blending. That's really fascinating.
0: Um, from a sensory perspective, like what do you, you know, when you taste that kind of oxidative impact, uh, you know, how would you describe it?
2: It's it's a it's a deeper and more complete aging than what you get from anything that you pull out of a barrel. Obviously, you're going to get more oak, um, but the, uh, the the caramel notes that pop uh, that's not in the fresh beer. Um, the the malleard you're doing a low temperature malleard oxidation. Um, and it's like super bread crust. It's almost like the flavor of bread crust ran, you know, a quarter of an inch deep into your white bread as opposed to just like the outer 16th of an inch what have you. You
1: also get that super creme brulee character, I I think as well from that, uh, from the oxidation of the higher uh, finishing gravity beer just aging in the barrel it's it's as marty alluded to it's a, such a wonderful blending component to add complexity and as we have all these barrels and with extended aging and different finishing gravities it it allows us to really approach this as marty said put a metric on it and really create and design
0: a beer Rather than just having it go into a barrel and then emptying it every year, so it's almost fascinating. Though I mean, you know, if you look at you know the history of beer, there actually is a corollary for this kind of blend of of multi-year beers. If you look at Goose. Um, you know, in that blend of one, two, and three-year-old Lambic, uh, you're applying that similar kind of logic that smaller amounts of older beer blended with larger amounts of younger beer, you know, can be uh, developed in order to produce it. Obviously, yours is not wild and spontaneous and funky, Uh, you know, you're talking about clean barrel-aged beers, but it's, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting, uh, uh, you know, almost parallel to that kind of style of blending of of pulling these multiple age, you know, beers and using smaller amounts of older, along with larger amounts of younger, um, you know, and so yeah, you're right. It's not. It's not necessarily out of nowhere. There really is a, you know, almost a beer history uh, defense of this.
1: I think one of the other things that we've always, one of our approaches with the barrel age program is, you know, kind of old teachings and the old school method and. Mindset for brewing uh, barley wines and imperial stouts uh, of the English style was to always hit them with like really heavy amounts of hot bitterness. And you know, it was always looked at as a preservative agent, and you know, over time it's going to mellow and that bitterness will chill out. But we've always approached it uh, as targeting lower IBUs in our barrel aged beers, and we're really looking at uh, brewing these beers with a little higher ABV to help preserve the beer in the barrel. Um, I one of the things I really feel, just from my perspective uh, of tasting barrel-aged beers and beers that we've made in the past, is that it doesn't take uh, a very high IBU level to really kind of derail the balance and the texture of the beer. Because that that bitterness, when you couple it with a higher alcohol content, could definitely make for a little bit of unbalance in the finished projects or the finished product. Excuse me. So. We've always kind of targeted lower IBUs in our beers, and um, we're looking, what would you say, Marty? We're like in that like 30 IBU range for our beer that is coming out of barrels. Um, I always remember reading about Imperial Stouts, and they were talking about you know targeting 80, 90 IB, finished IBUs in there. And uh, I've always kind of felt that it's just a softer finished product if you're not dealing with the high ABV and then the high bitterness level as well. So... Um, we want the ability to extended age our beer uh, and have people enjoy it as well, but we want people to be able to drink it, crack open a can that day too, and not have to sure. age it for five years to let the uh, IBUs chill out and smooth out.
0: And you, like you said, you're producing complexity, you know, with some other malt oxidation characteristics. Are there, uh, you know, some specific malts that you really enjoy the way that they? in particular, you know, create some of those oxidative flavors more so than other malts?
1: When we've brewed our high-gravity beers in the Deepwood series, we've never got really deeply— like, when we brew the Straightjacket, it's a very simple malt bill. It's primarily pale ale malt. There's a tiny bit of caramelized malt and just a tiny bit of Special B in there. It's huh. primarily base malt. When we run that work to the brew kettle, I mean, it's a it's an orange color— um, it's very high gravity. I mean, when our sure, ca- sure. when we're done boiling, we, we boil for More boils. Yeah, yeah, we boil for thirty minutes, and that's where we're interested in picking up our color and caramelizing those sugars in the brew kettle, rather than uh, just adding a bunch of different specialty malts. Because when you have too many specialty malts, I, I once again I feel that you kind of hamper your attenuation of that beer, and you produce something that's a little too sweet from the beginning. I personally believe that uh by boiling those malt sugars and really caramelizing them that's where you really develop these super intense and complex sugar characteristics in the finished beer and once it comes out of the barrel that's where you start getting that like crispy creme brulee type character of like burnt
0: sugar caramelized yeah. sugar and i no, you I, just said 30 minutes yeah, but that can't be hours. right three hours okay oh three hours excuse <laughs> me no that's okay i uh no i would you know uh, if you could get that flavor out of a 30-minute boil, then every brewer wants that secret right away. <laughs> yeah, no, we're
1: we're a minimum of three hours on all our high-gravity beers: uh, Straightjacket, uh, Rye Way to Heaven. We, we love caramelizing those sugars and really developing that flavor, aroma, and that color as well. And when Straightjacket is done boiling after three hours, I mean, it's a almost like a garnet red color. So, I mean, we've we've caramelized a lot of sugars. And really created some intensity and yeah. flavor and aroma as well.
0: Yeah, uh, we're, uh, we're we're getting towards the end here, but I, before we uh, check out, I would love to talk to you a little bit uh, and completely shift gears and talk a little about uh, uh, you know, Hazy Hero. You know, this is uh, you know a big step for you all. You all, you know, Revolution. You're known for anti-hero. You're known for you know brash, bold, uh, hoppy kind of West Coast style IPAs. Uh, you know, with a with a strong attitude, and now you're taking this move into producing uh, six packs of shelf stable, hazy IPA that are hops forward. Uh, also, uh, you know, with that kind of soft bitterness approach. Talk to me a little bit, uh, you know, Jim, about how you have developed uh, this idea for what a hazy IPA means when it comes from revolution. And then, uh, you know, as we go through the conversation, i would love to talk a little bit about how you've uh, dialed in some of your processes in order to kind of produce something that's going to be consistent.
1: I think brews, uh, brewing hazy IPAs I think was it was a little challenging for the brew team, especially the cellar team, to uh, wrap their minds around. Uh, they pride themselves upon clarifying our beers no matter what the gravity is, the hopping rates. Uh, they love seeing clear beers come out of the brewery. Um, so we didn't really jump into the arena of brewing hazy IPAs. Uh, right off the bat, we wanted to kind of circle our wagons and do some research. Uh, Glenn Allen, who's our brewery manager, and John P., or Jumpy as he's known, uh, who's our uh, head brewer at the brew pub, were at the forefront of designing and experimentation with our hazy brewing here at Revolution at our uh, brew pub on Milwaukee Avenue. They experimented with different E strains, different grain bills, different hopping rates, different times of adding the hops. Uh, so that's really where we did all our trialing over there and once they had proof of concept of a, a plan for a yeast strain uh, the hops the hopping rates the times we're going to be adding the hops the, the quantities of hops in the grain bill Then we felt comfortable to bring it over to Kedzie, uh over here for a trial batch. So one of the things we were looking at and we just wanted to make a beer As I said, getting back to talking about balance, we always wanted to make something that we were very happy about. We wanted to make sure it was a stable haze. We wanted to make sure it had a nice head. We wanted to make sure that when we packaged this beer, it wasn't going to drop out in a week. We wanted to try to make sure that we have a good stable haze in it. So we approached it from the point of balance once again. We wanted it to be aromatic. We wanted it to be citrusy. We wanted it to be nice and smooth, a lower... uh, let's say a lower IBU range, just so we're not getting a real sharp bitterness, as is pretty true to style. We also manipulated our water, so we were about three to one with the amount of calcium chloride to gypsum. So that kind of shifted our whole game plan. Normally we're higher on our percentage of gypsum to calcium chloride here. We're trying to get a little bit of a sharp bitterness from our hops, but we wanted to smooth and round this beer out uh, considerably to uh, be true to style. So we finally settled upon uh, using two-row as a base malt. Uh, we use some crisp oat malt. We used some flaked wheat and oats and then a little bit of carapils as well. And uh, with our wet mill, we're doing a single in- infusion mash, and we are at 156 degrees. So uh, with our hazy hero, we are starting at 16.5 Plato and going down to about is our target 37 to 39 right around in that range so we're not finishing really high but we're not finishing super dry either and i think having a little bit of a lower finishing gravity just from my perspective uh, makes for a little more of a drinkable beer but we're still achieving the silky texture that we want from those flake grains um, and the calcium chloride being a little heavier percentage in the mash as well Uh, So we got a pretty velvety texture in the finished product. Um, But one of the cool things we're doing, and we experimented with, which is just mind-boggling to me being an older school brewer, is we actually experimented with actually dry-hopping our yeast prop. So we're propagating uh, the London 3 ale strain. um, And what we're doing is we're actually, right before we pump wort into the fermentation tank, we're dry-hopping the yeast prop. And I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but we actually dry hop with pellets, hop pellets, the yeast prop, which, which is insane. I, I, Matt Brendelson and Vinny are probably rolling over. They're, they're probably <laughs> passing out right now and being revived. You're taking
0: biotransformation to a whole new level here, Jim. That's, uh, that's interesting.
1: So we're trying to get maximum contact yeah, yeah. Uh, of the yeast and the pellets. And then we're cooling our wort from our brew house. In. So there's
0: no chance then of reusing that yeast.
1: I, you know, you probably could. I'm not quite sure. We've never experimented. What we've been doing is we've just been repropping yeast every time we brew this beer. So after that initial dry hop, we cool our wort in from the brew house uh, into the fermentation tank. We start fermenting at 68 degrees, and then on like day one and a half to day two, we temp up our tank to 73 degrees Fahrenheit. Usually rips down pretty quickly to about four and a half, 4.8 Play-Doh. And that's where we do our second dry hop. And that is at two pounds per barrel, which is pretty aggressive as well. Um, There's still a little bit of fermentation. So it's a
0: two-stage dry hop. First one coming in on the yeast prop, second one coming in later. That's You call it double dry hops then? (laughs)
1: Um, We we have called some beers double dry hop. I'm not sure if we're officially calling Hazy Hero double dry hop, but it is double dry hop for sure. sure. Once that second dry hop goes in though, we don't want to go back to the blow off bucket because we don't want to vent off all those nice hop oils that we're extracting from the dry hop. So what we do is we put an adjustable PRV on the tank and we set that at 14 PSI. So that allows mm-hmm. that last little bits of fermentation to take place without overpressurizing the tank and someone doesn't have to be standing there or watching it every day to make sure it doesn't overpressurize. It keeps it right at 14 PSI and that allows us to finish up the
0: uh, fermentation. And that, uh, you know, are you seeing additional fermentation kick up uh, when you, you know, in that kind of dry hopping process? Obviously, since your first one's coming with your niece, I mean, it's all, that's all happening at one time. When you add that second charge, which is a little bit larger charge than the first one, I think probably uh, one third larger from the brew sheet that you showed me. Mm -hmm. um, You know, is that, uh, you know, kicking up any more fermentation at that point?
1: We are seeing a little bit of fermentation. I mean, it's towards the end of fermentation, so there is still about a degree, Plato, of... Uh, activity. Uh, But we're seeing a little bit of secondary fermentation as well from enzymatic activity of the dry hop. So uh, to any brewers out there, I would encourage you to not crash tanks too quickly. When you think you're at terminal gravity, you might want to let that baby chill out for two or three days and just make sure you're not uh, seeing a a little secondary fermentation spark off because that's definitely a possibility. And, And there's once that enzyme activity takes place and that those fermentable sugars are produced, you'd rather carry on that secondary fermentation in the fermentation vessel than you would uh, in your package
0: on the <laughs> shelf. <laughs> for sure. Um, your hops mix on this one is uh, you know 25% of four different hops. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you uh, you know envision that mix and uh, how you select those individual hops um, for the kind of flavor uh, character that you're looking for.
1: You know, one of the cool things is I, I feel as brewers, we're all fighting over the next newest hop variety. But I think using some classic hops at the right time and in conditions with the yeast, you could pull out some of these really cool tropical uh, passion fruit flavors that everyone's you know dying to get, and you're you're pulling them out of hops that you have readily available at you know, 8 $9 a pound rather than $40 a pound on, on the spot market. So that's a really cool thing. And uh, I don't know if anyone's really performed the experiment. We've talked about wanting to take some high and beer and just drop a little bit of every particular hop pellet that we have <laughs> and just see yeah. exactly what it does. We haven't quite gotten, or gotten to that point yet, but I think you could pull out some pretty awesome flavor and aroma from some hops that you really wouldn't, think, or not necessarily on the tip of your tongue.
0: Uh, Obviously, I've I've talked about this before, but I love uh, some of these new hops mixes that we're seeing with some uh, classic and noble hops mixed in with some kind of new school hops, and it provides an interesting touchstone for IPA drinkers to both have a little bit of classic feel to that as well as uh, some of these more contemporary citrus and tropical kind of notes, but...
1: I could allude upon the hops that we add in the Whirlpool for, um, for Hazy Hero and the hazy IPAs that we brewed here at Kedzie pellet wise, and that is actually zero. So we've added there's zero hops huh. in the brew kettle while we're boiling. Uh, we boil with a little bit of firm cap S just to keep foaming down. Um, and when we're adding, or when we would go to add a Whirlpool edition of hops, all we're adding is some CO2 bittering extract once the whirlpool is about halfway full. So we're trying to extract our bitterness from this addition, but what we're trying to do is not create a giant true pile. Um, As any brewer out there is looking to try to maximize the amount of wort that goes to the fermenter, and then subsequently the amount of finished beer you get, we've found that we'd rather add our hopping and try to extract all these cool aromas and flavors from the hops in the fermentation tank. Uh, and take our loss there rather than take the loss uh, in the in the brew house we we feel that any hop contribution is going to be more impactful there than it's going to be in the whirlpool and you're also going to take loss there as well
0: but on the flip side you're also centrifuging all of this before it goes uh you know out to package you know in order to kind of you know mitigate some of that loss in the process
1: You know, I think that's one of the best things we could do as brewers. If you have the ability is to give these beers the proper, the hazy beers, the amount of proper time to sit cold. Or uh, for us, we're actually centrifuging ours, um, as Jamie alluded to. We're trying to not clarify by any means. We're just trying to separate, quite honestly. We're trying to separate hop material, uh, any yeast that might have settled out. We're just trying to put as pure of a hazy product into the bright tank and then the can uh, with a uh, stable haze as we can. Um, One one of the things we're trying to avoid is having a lot of hop particulate in there. We don't want to give any chance for any hop creep or secondary fermentation or just more actual plant matter or yeast to sit and
0: die in a can or um, hop matter to oxidize. Well, I can't wait to grab a few cans of Hazy Hero before I head out of here and uh, hopefully get to uh, taste some of your very special old barrel-aged beers. But uh, Jim Seaback and Marty Scott, thank you for joining me here at Revolution Brewing on the podcast.
1: It was an honor. It was uh, great to have you here and glad you can enjoy a few uh, Rev
2: Pills with us. For sure. Yeah, privilege. Thank you so much. So if people want to learn more about Revolution Brewing, uh, where do they find you guys? Uh, The website is RevBrew.com for the company website. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, at RevBrewChicago. And my personal Twitter handle is at RevBarrels.
0: At RevBarrels, i got to follow you, Marty. Uh, Before we head out of here, G&D Chiller sets the standard on quality, service, and reliability. Stay connected to the heart of craft beer with Tavor. Country Malt Group's expertise helps you make better beer, and Clarion Lubricants is the expert that experts trust. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Uh, we ran an article, actually, a couple issues ago with uh, Marty talking about some of the barrel aging processes so you can get a little more, a different little perspective on some of, of, of what they're doing, uh, as well as staying on touch with uh, what some of the, today's best professional brewers are doing and how that can impact your own brewing. Uh, think of it as like a Patreon where we actually just send you a magazine uh, every two weeks or two months Uh, you know, as a, as a thank you for that. And you still get to listen to this podcast for free. So thank you to our sponsors that make it possible. Thank you to guests like Jim and Marty who've, uh, you know, now spent a hour and 20 minutes talking to me on the podcast, Uh, but uh, cheers guys. Cheers, Jamie. Thank you, bud. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.